We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Actor and comedian Michael Fenton Stevens first came to public attention on the Spitting Image 1986 number one hit, The Chicken Song, before a cameo appearance on Only Fools and Horses in 1989. A string of successful cameos followed him into the 90s where he landed a role opposite the late Gary Olson in the 1996 drama Pilgrim's Rest. Yet possibly he's best known for his role in the cult 80s sketch show Radioactive alongside Angus Deaton and the late Jeffrey Perkins. I got up with the star of stage and screen to talk satire, sketches and the secret to being a successful supporting actor. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Michael Fenton Stevens. So um, you first came to public attention on the seminal 1980s satirical sketch show Spitting Image. Why yeah, do you think right. this was so influential in mocking the establishment? Well, I think there'd always been a tradition of uh, political satire in uh, in Britain, uh, going right back to you know um, beyond the fringe and uh, um, those sort of things. Uh, that was the week that was. It, so it was it was a line of a tradition that had been going on for quite a long time, I think. Um, but it seemed to really hit a hit a uh, nerve with the public. I think that actually it, they were very lucky that they had such a, a an enormous budget. Uh, it's a program that just couldn't be made today because if you ever look at the credits for, for Spitting Image, there were an enormous number of people involved in it. Puppeteers, scriptwriters, musicians, singers, uh, actors doing the voices, uh, the whole crew or the cameramen. It was just colossal production thing. And um, But I think what was good about it was that they never really held back, you know, and, and also it was a... It was a difficult time around then you know it was a there was a, a rather like today it's a sort of program we could do with today really, I think, yeah. because the country was then as it is now very divided in opinion and quite starkly so you've got one side of the country who were who really loathed uh, the conservative party of margaret thatcher and the other side of the country who adored her mm. uh, and and so i think that actually you know people really enjoyed that um, political satire because of that, you know, you either watched it and, and, and laughed with glee or you watched it and laughed with a certain irony. You know? So, but, but for me, it was enormous fun. You know, I, mean, I have to say when you're young and you're just involved in these things and are making, um, making those sort of programs, it's, it's brilliant fun. We felt, you know, that, that, um, that we could do anything really, that we could say anything. That was the other side of it, that there didn't seem to be any sort of, um, uh, a great deal of, of legal control over it. There obviously was, otherwise people would have got in terrible trouble, but uh, mm. that, that happened very early on with the writing. And also, yeah. you know, when you look at the writers on it and the people who worked on it, um, it actually launched quite a number of people's careers, really, but um, but the, the standard of the people who worked on it was very high. Lots of them are extremely famous people now, Steve Coogan and Harry Enfield, uh, you know, so and Chris Barry did loads of it and everything, and he's sort of uh, you know still going, but mostly tinkering with cars, I think. But uh, it, it was, and and I did a lot of the singing on it, so that was one of the things that I really enjoyed. Is yeah. um, 
that we did loads of songs for it, and we would record them all at the beginning of the series. So that was the song side of it was rather sort of a concentrated period where we would go into the studio and work for a couple of weeks and doing songs. And then during the, pro, during the series, as it went out, if other ideas came up, we would go back in and do some more. So, um, you know, uh, I was lucky enough to be in the recording session when uh, Philip Pope, who was the musical director at the time and had written the Chicken Song, uh, yeah. basically, you know, handed it to me and said, well, you sing this one, Mike, you know. And so yeah. I sang it, and it's like one of, the, one of any of the other songs, really. We didn't really think that it was, uh, we thought it was funny, but we didn't think that it was um, better or worse than any of the other ones we did, you know. Uh, in fact, there are other songs that I prefer doing, you know. And we had amazing singers on there. We had uh, some of the best session singers in the in the world performing yeah. on, on those things. Uh, Lance Ellington was one of them who was uh, who's now one of the singers on Strictly Come Dancing every yeah. week. And he's still got an amazing voice. He's famous for singing uh, Gillette, the best a man can get. Oh. That's, that's, he, he made a fortune doing that, of course. But um, you know, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a brilliant time. At the same time we'd also, one of the reasons that we were doing it is that I'd been involved in a, in a, a program on Radio 4 called Radioactive, which was a a satirical, well, a sort of a, a comedy program, a sort of spoof radio station uh, called Radioactive. And we played all the DJs in it and all the characters and all the people who were interviewed. And, and it was a device whereby we could do lots of sketches. But every week we would also do a, uh, a, a pop song, so a, a, a Mickey-taking pop song in the style of a different group. So uh, when you think we did um, 64 radio programs, we did 64 different parodies. Yeah. Over there, over that period. So by the time Spitting Image came along, we were all, we were established as the people to go to if you wanted to do um, uh, a parody of a pop group. So that's really why we got the job, I think. And that that was with Radioactive. Was that that was with uh, Angus Deaton. Angus yeah. Deaton, yeah. We've, we've yeah, just strangely Jeffrey. enough all got all got back together again. It was uh, Angus Deaton, Jeffrey Perkins, Helen Atkinson Wood. And Philip Pope. Sadly, Jeffrey has died since then. But uh, mm. but he was a fantastic man, Jeffrey. And and uh, actually, what a shame you can't interview him because he had the most amazing career. He was um, uh, he started with us, but at the same time, he was already a radio producer, and he was a producer for um, Sorry, I Haven't a Clue. And yeah. uh, although he always denied it and said no, no it was a group thing, uh, most people, including Barry Cryer, credit him with coming up with the idea of Mornington Crescent. On, sorry, having a clue. So he was incredibly influential there, but he went on to do, uh, well, he was a producer of Spitting Image for a while, and then he, he also did uh, Friday Night Live and Father Ted and uh, Catherine Tate and uh, just an enormous, Harry Enfield, enormous number of uh, programs over the years, which he was um, sort of responsible for. Yeah. And, uh, and many people say that his involvement in it was the thing that made the thing work. So uh, what a shame Jeffrey's not around to talk to. Because well, what an interview that would be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, we, we were going to sort of basically lean on from that, ask you about uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Because was Radioactive um, that sort of we followed did, yeah, the Edinburgh we, we, Fringe? It was. We, well, we haven't been up. It was actually it's actually our 40th anniversary of going up to Edinburgh. We first did we first performed as a team, the Radioactive team, in Edinburgh 40 years ago. So we thought we ought to go back up and, and do something. And yeah. uh, what we did was we recreated. Um, some radio, a radio show from the uh, 1980s. We, we basically took the script from the 1980s and we did it again with a few small additions to pad it out to make it you know, uh, fit the hour slot. But um, it, was, it was brilliant fun. 
and it was great. And uh, and amazingly, I think uh, it was nice to discover that that actually just sort of silly comedy, uh, you know, a good joke is always a good joke. Yeah. And uh, and so it didn't matter that the that the material was written in 1984 or whatever. Uh, it was still funny, and uh, we really enjoyed doing it. We struggled a bit with some of the younger characters, of course, because we're all now in our 60s. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, but many of the other characters that we played when we were in our 20s, um, like, uh, you know, retired colonels and, and majors and, you know, all that sort of thing, politicians, uh, we were able to do much better, obviously. Yeah. So you, what you lose on, uh, on the swings, you gain on the roundabout, That's as it. they say. So why do you think uh, Edinburgh remains such a pivotal stepping stone for comedy success? Well, uh, it's grown over the years, of course. I mean, it, 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 it is what it is because it, it by, you know, coincidentally, it happened a long time ago. That, you know, when you, you go back to uh, what I've always, rem- always, always, always rem- rem- uh, mentioned, the um, uh, you know, John Cleese and, and those, that crowd, all those from the Cambridge footlights, many of them were first noticed at the Edinburgh Fringe. And uh, uh, Beyond the Fridge was, was one of those, Beyond the Fringe, and those sort of programs were, were, um, came out of that. So that was in the 50s. So I think it was a very small local festival then. It was actually an official festival, and there was a small fringe attached to it. But right. people who performed there got noticed, and I think that other performers noticed that and thought, well, I'll go up and do it. And over the years, it's grown and grown and grown, and now it's, it's a colossal thing. But actually, to be a hit in Edinburgh... Is, can really change people's careers. It opens all sorts of doors for you. So, um, so people are willing to go up there and try and, ho- and hope they get noticed. And people still do. That's the good thing about it. There's an enormous effort made to watch new performers and to, um, to see who's coming through. You know. But I remember lots of performers uh, who, who I've seen up in the League of Gentlemen. I've, I've been visited Edinburgh a lot. And you know, saw the League of Gentlemen. They were just a review group. Saw uh, Steve Coogan when he was just starting out. Yeah. Uh, just the list of names of winners over the years of the uh, what was used to be called the Perrier Award, but is the best um, show in the Fringe Award. But it's um, it's extraordinary. So yeah. they've been very good at spotting people, but actually, generally, it's it's the crowd that spot them. You know, there are so many people up there who go up so dedicated. They go to seven or eight shows a day, maybe yeah. more even. You know, because they're an hour long and you go in and nothing's that expensive. So you can go up there and go and see a lot of shows. And very quickly you find that they'll, they'll, they're always shows that, um, uh, that, I can't remember the name of the show I saw this year, but, uh, but I saw it right at the beginning of the thing and I thought it was, it was extraordinary, just a small play. And by the end of the run, they were putting on loads of extra shows and you couldn't get tickets to save your life. You know, it was completely sold out. So word of mouth works extremely well in Edinburgh, you know. But yeah. um, there are other ways in, but it's one of those ways that people use to get noticed. And uh, and as it's such a, a sort of a concentrated thing over a three and a half week period, it's a very good way to do it, you know. Yeah. So um, obviously the show Radioactive followed a now recognised route, which has spawned many of our best loved comedy shows over the last 20 years, including Miranda, Little Britain and The League of Gentlemen. Yeah, why, yeah. Do you, why do you think the show was able to make a seamless transition from radio to television in the form of KYTV? Well, you say seamless. I'm not sure it was seamless. Uh, we, we did radio for a long time, so um, uh, we felt that we'd really sort of earned our spurs, as it were, by the time we did 
uh, television. We'd done seven series on radio by the time we got transferred to television. And we'd won, you know, nearly every award you could win. So actually the BBC as a television company took a long time to pick us up. And, and I think the reason for that was that at the time there was a, uh, a feeling that a program that parodies... Um, so we would if we moved to television, we would parody television. And they were saying, well, a program that, you know, if we're doing a television program which parodies television, it's a bit in, isn't it? It's sort of, we'll get it, but will the general public? And we kept saying, well, they get it with radio. Why wouldn't they get it with television? But eventually they said to have a go. But actually... We by then we were not terribly experienced at writing for um, for television, so we used a lot of the stuff that we'd done on radio and sort of adapted it uh, for television. And I think it was only it was only really like a, like a lot of shows by the end of the third series. By the time we came, we did the third series of it. Then we'd really um, hit our stride as far as writing for television was concerned. It was much more aimed at a television audience, and we did a lot more visual jokes. Yeah. So it, it worked much better, and that was the series that won. We won uh, Montreux and everything. They did offer us uh, more series after that, but we felt that we'd uh, we'd been doing radioactive and then KYTV for about uh, twelve, thirteen years, and other things were starting to happen. Angus was uh, was obviously really taking off with Have I Got News for You, and Jeffrey was very heavily in demand as a producer, and they were the main writers for the show. So I think we all decided that that. <clears throat> It, it, we really wouldn't be able to find the time to do any more, so that's why we stopped. You know, but um, but it was great fun. It was lovely time, lovely time to have spent with very good friends. They're all still very good friends of mine, so it's lovely. Yeah, lovely. Um, so in eight, 1989, you guest starred in what is now considered one of the classic episodes of Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> I did. And the unlucky winner is where Dell submits yeah. one of Rodney's paintings into a children's competition. Yes. What sort of accolade is it to participate in something so beloved? It is the most that I get noticed. Uh, people still now to this day come up to me uh, in pubs, in, in the street, and say, hello, mate, were you in Only Fools and Horses? And, they, and it happens to me almost on a daily basis, which gives you, um, gives you an idea of just how effective that program was and how yeah. loved it is and how, how, how incredibly detailed the knowledge is of the people who watch it. They must have watched those programs dozens of times, if not more, mm. uh, to be that familiar with it. Because let's face it, when I did it, I was uh, you know, 34 or something and uh, a young skinny bloke. And, you know, I'm not completely overweight, but I I'm, I'm certainly don't look anything like I did when I was 34, I don't think. Mm. And yet people recognize me almost instantly. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Um, and, and it really was. So it's a week of my life I spent doing that, that program. And uh, and it's been the one program of all the things that I've done uh, that again and again and again people stop me on the street and say, "Oh, mate, it's only fools and horses," and I go, "Yeah, one week." You know? But um, but it was a brilliant week, I have to say. Uh, to, to to their great credit, everybody involved in it. And by the time I did it, that was it would be these sixth or seventh series of it. So they'd done a lot, mm. but they were so welcoming. I turned up as somebody doing one episode and was immediately introduced to everybody. Everybody said how nice it was to have you doing it. Uh, we all, the, we, I got shown what we did. David Jason was incredibly friendly and, and encouraging to everybody who came in. We had an enormously uh, enjoyable time. Normally, you'd go in and you'd rehearse your bit, and when you'd rehearsed your bit, you would be free to go. 
and they would carry on rehearsing. But David said, no, don't go, don't go, stay, because, you know, you might have ideas. So we yeah. all stayed there and we worked it as if we were doing a play. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was incredibly open to ideas. In fact, the end of that program, uh, it was one of the few times that David said to me that, that John Sullivan had not written a very good ending. And it didn't have a very good ending. With, um, and it, famously, that program always ended with a clever twist. And, and everybody said, this isn't very good, is it? And John said, I'm sorry, I know, I couldn't think of one. And the idea of him winning the, um, the, him winning the lottery uh, we only came up about two days before we filmed it. So, um, and it was in discussion between the whole cast, what could happen. And uh, I don't know, I think it probably was David who said, you know, um, well, why, why don't I win the lottery? And, they, and everybody said, yeah, well, that, you know, what are you going to do then? And they said, well, it, you could, we discussed whether um, it could be that the, the, the lottery win turned out to look like a lot, so like a million pesetas, which turned out to be about 500 pounds. Yeah. Uh, but um, but they said, oh, that doesn't quite work. And then it was John who took it away and came back and said, you know, no, we'll, we'll do this where his passport has been forged and he can't win it if you're not old enough. So that idea of the end of the program was was, uh, was sort of inspired by the group working on yeah. it. And considering that I'd only just been there for four or five days, to be that involved in a program was amazing. We had enormous fun. David organized... Um, uh, a dart competition. We rehearsed on the seventh floor of what we used to call the Acton Tower, which was uh, the rehearsal rooms for the BBC in Acton, near Acton Tube Station, London. And uh, and it's quite high up, and there's no tall buildings around it. You could see it for a long way away. And we used to, <laughs> on the Thursday when the crew came in, everybody came in with paper darts, uh, which oh. they'd all made during the week. And then yeah. they had a competition where we had to throw it from the window, and who, whoever's dart went the furthest uh, won a bottle of champagne. And that was organized by David. He insisted on everybody coming to lunch together. We all had lunch together rather than going off and doing our own things because he said it, he thought it was important to have a company feel in the stuff. And he's, he's always said to me ever since I've you know I've met him occasionally on different things and we bumped into each other, he's always welcomed me like a, a, a member of the cast. And he always yeah. says that once you're in the, the full, Only Fools family, then you're in the Only Fools family. And it's, um, it's a really lovely thing, actually. Yeah. Uh, to feel that I am part of that program, and to to you know not not that I'm sort of cheating my way in by having done one episode, but actually that that um, they do feel as if I'm part of the family. The same with Nick Lintas, you know. I mean, I've come across him a number of times over the years, and he's always welcomed me as if we were you know co-workers and uh, and and friends. It's really lovely, I think. So uh, I'm sure that would contribute to to why the program was such an enormous success is that they, they worked very hard at it. I mean, when you think that David and Nick had to learn those scripts every week, and as they went on, they didn't get any more time to learn from a 30-minute program to a 40-minute program, and then to a 50-minute program. And they were doing a 50-minute television program a week uh, and, and learning the whole thing. And they had those scripts learned by Wednesday, and we didn't film them until the Friday night, or the sun, Saturday, in fact. Yeah. So they only had Sunday off to start learning the next one you know and that's they were incredibly hard working and really dedicated and it was a joy to work with them i have to say uh, a joy to watch them work i think i learned in that week about the skill about the art of, of making television comedy i learned more in that week than i learned in in months of doing other things
You know, yeah. So it was um, it was it was a fabulous job to do. So I'm very proud to have been in it. You know, so yeah. I always whenever anybody says to me, "Were you know, only fools and horses?" I usually say, "No, my son was." But um, but uh, but actually, no, I'm really proud to have been in it. Yeah, I was very lucky. Lovely. Um, so 1996, um, you starred alongside the late Gary Olsen and Gwen Taylor for the short-lived comedy drama, drama Pilgrim's Rest. Yeah, a much-forgotten programme, sadly. Why do you think that only ran for one series? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it was, uh, the, it was around a time when the pressure on the BBC to compete more was there. And actually, uh, more and more programmes were only getting one series. And uh, it's interesting that you talk about that following on from uh, Only Fools and Horses, because at the end of the first series of Only Fools and Horses, lots of people were saying, this isn't working, is it? It doesn't work. And it really didn't have very good viewing figures, uh, Only Fools and Horses, for the end of the first series. It was only about halfway through the second series that it started to take off. Uh, and, and so had they looked at the figures, as it were, which is what they do now, for Only Fools and Horses, they may well have said, well, it's not getting a big enough audience, let's ditch it. But they didn't. They said, no, I think this is going to be good, and they stuck with it. And I think that actually, you know, when you talk about other things, I've been involved in other programs where, and as as I've got older, I think people are getting more, the pressure on people to be, um, to get things right immediately is is really growing because you're in a very competitive field now there there are so many things that people can do other than watching television and they've got so much that they can pick on you know anytime they like they can watch you know classic television or or, or any other sort they can walk, walk and watch american television whereas you know you never you never had that choice before no. I mean, there wasn't netflix and prime and all those you know now tv and all those things and you couldn't decide what you wanted to watch when you wanted to watch it you had to watch what was on yeah you know i mean uh, i can remember video recorders coming out and people saying oh well this is going to ruin television because people will be able to watch what anything they want whenever they want uh, well it's taken a while but that that is the case now so it really you know when when you think that um fools and horses at its height was getting 25 million people watching it and that's almost half the population yeah so you know, that's um, that's incredible yeah. Whereas now a, a television program is is seen as a success if it gets uh, if people are getting four or five million viewers. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I think sadly the pressure is on things now to to be to get it right absolutely right from the start, and I think that that was about the start of that. So when we did that that series, well that was really good fun. It had a very good cast and uh, we had a lovely time doing it, and it was a very good idea because it's if anything that that sets something in one place where you have unusual people coming together is a good idea for a sitcom you know yeah. so um you know if you can which is why porridge is such a great idea you know anywhere where you can set something you know open all hours it's a shop but anybody can walk in so you know you you sort of go you can see how if you're going to write a sitcom that's the situation you're looking for really you're looking for an environment where you have regular people but you can occasionally bring in someone from the outside you know so um yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it it had all the all the the right makings of being a very good program, but um, but you know, there you go. I've done I've done hundreds of pilots for television over the years, which had never even seen the light of day. Yeah. So um, you know, it's uh, it's one of those, it's a it's a difficult business. It's difficult to get things on. Yeah, so, it certainly you know. is. 
So more recently, though, you've swapped comedy for children's TV as uh, anchor on CBBS. What yeah, are the similarities yeah. between sort of, children's TV and comedy? Oh, I think that children's TV is quite difficult, actually, because uh, children are, are not easily fooled. You know, children are very willing to, to go off into a fantasy world. They're very willing to go off into a story. They will accept the story. But if that story becomes either boring or you know, a bit silly or it doesn't work or, that you know, if they suddenly lose faith in it, they'll ditch it. Just like that. They haven't, they've, they've got no sort of, uh, sort of politeness about them, the okay. children. You know, if they get bored, they're bored. That's it. They just go. They just yeah. walk away. You know, so in fact, to keep children entertained is um, is is more difficult, I think, than you know. I've, I've worked with the RFC, and as far as I'm concerned, it's a doddle, you know, because yeah. people have paid sixty quid to come and see those shows. They're all sitting there, all got done up. They bought themselves champagne before they went in. They're sitting yeah. down to watch Shakespeare, which is something they want to do see in an iconic place. They're very unlikely to halfway through go. I'm sorry, this is rubbish, and walk out. Yeah. So you can get away with murder, I think, at, at the RSC. You know, you can. Most they're they're bound to clap a lot at the end because they're they're sort of in a way clapping themselves for having gone through three hours of or three and a half hours of Shakespeare. Yeah. They're sort of pleased that they've done it. You know, um, that's what I think. You know, but I don't don't tell the don't tell Greg Doran that, otherwise he'll never employ me again. But, but, uh, but I, but you know, I, but I've done pantomime, and pantomime is hard. Pantomime is hard work. You have to put an enormous amount of energy into pantomime, and you have to, you, you can't let it drop for a moment. If it gets at all boring, kids will just walk around. They'll just go off somewhere. Mm. They won't sit there and be patient. They, you know, they want to be entertained. So if you're not doing it, they'll, they'll give up on you. So you've got to really make sure that every moment of a pantomime is interesting and exciting and fun and fast-moving and full of jokes and full of silliness. You know, it's, it's, it's really hard work, pantomime. And you do it sometimes two or three times a day, you know. So, I mean, it's, um, I, but I've found that, you know, people saying, I've got a friend who's at the Globe at the moment and he's just done uh, days where they've done three Shakespeare's in a day. Now, admittedly, Shakespeare is a bit longer, you know, but they, they cut it down to two and a half hours. When I've done, I do pantomimes at two and a half hours long, and I do three in a day, and we, then the next day we do another three. Whereas yeah. he was saying he was exhausted because they'd done three Shakespeare's. And I go, well, yeah, but, you know, you were only on every other third scene, yeah. doing a little bit of Shakespearing. You know, I, I play Dame. While I'm off, I'm getting changed into another dress. <laughs> it's exhausting. You know, Sounds so. Do you see what I mean? That, that, yeah. that, that's my theory of, of children's television. So when people, it's a lot of people wouldn't watch it, but actually, you know, I mean, children's television is really hard to put together, I think, and really yeah. hard to make it work. You know, and when, you, when, it, when it does, it's why people have, have such fondness for programs that they, uh, that they loved when they were children. Because actually the chances are if they loved them when they were children, they were really good programs. You know? Yeah. That's, they worked. So... Um, I think I think it's harder to write for children than it is to write for adults. Adults would be much more forgiving. Yeah. So looking back over your career, then, what would you say your proudest achievement is? Um, I'm, I'm still working. I think is the thing. You know, yeah. it's. Um, I've had lots of friends who, who, in my opinion, were much more talented than me and much better actors, uh, and I've worked with lots of them over the years, and then I've seen them disappear. 
yeah. where they've had to, they've stopped and they've started driving taxis or gone into teaching or something else, you know, because they just couldn't get enough work to mm. sustain their career. And yeah. I have, and I have done that. I have managed to keep going. You know, it, it's it's more and more difficult as you get older, obviously. But you know, but I'm but hopefully you've done well when you're younger and you can it, it becomes easy you don't have to do quite so much yeah but which is my case now i'm very fortunate you know but um but i would say that would be the thing i'm most proud of i mean i've really i feel very lucky because i think that i've actually uh sort of got away with it really you know <laughs> I, I decided to have a go at it uh when i was at university i was destined to go into law and then decided to carry on and have a go at it yeah. and um and and now I'm still doing it, you know. Yeah, so I sort of, um, it's been I've been very lucky, really. Um, so I mean that's the thing I, I, I'm I'm very pleased with is uh, I'm still still going. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've done loads of things that I've I've loved doing. Um, I've done. It's always actually when you look at the work that you've done, and which which pieces of work you're most proud of, it's always the ones that nobody's ever heard of. Strangely. Mm. You know, yeah. it's never it's never the most famous thing that you're most proud of, or, or the thing that earned you the most money. You know, you're you're, you're always most proud of of I don't know, just tiny little bits or plays that you've done. I've done little plays in small theatres that I've known. You you can sense it when you're doing it, are having a really uh, fundamental effect on the people who are watching it, even though there may only be a hundred of them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know they're really uh, amazing things to be involved in, and also the fact uh, that you know, and then uh, television. Uh, there are programs that I've done that I really am very proud of, but they really didn't get much exposure. But I look back on them as my best pieces of work. Yeah, right? and and so it's it's strange, but you know. Um, so, but I mean, I wouldn't say you know there's anything that particularly stands out. I think. Really, the fact that I've um, I've managed to, to, as I say, go from, you know, RSC to to pantomime in my mm. career uh, means that I've uh, I've always been adaptable, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and willing to give things a go, and I think that's what's seen me through. Yeah, you know, which is uh, yeah, it's great. So, with that being said, then what next for Michael Fenton Stevens? Oh well, yes, next. Uh, uh, you know, Parable? I've never had I've never had any idea what's next. No. Uh, for my uh, my whole career, it may think you may sort of think that actually people sort of have a plan or or you know that I I think oh well I'll do some of this and everything but I I really don't I, I never have I just um, sit and wait and see what comes up and yeah. uh, whatever comes up people ask me to do something I generally say yes Fair enough. Uh, because I like doing it yeah. and uh, and and it sort of slightly feels as if, if you know I would say if I've over my career worked on average three quarters of the year and the rest of the time I haven't worked. So that means already I'm up on most people because I get three months holiday a year. Yeah. Uh, and other people call it resting. But, I, you know, if you've earned enough in the three quarters to make a thing, then I get I get three months holiday. It's yeah, brilliant. You know, and the rest of the time when I'm working, most of the time it doesn't feel like work. It feels really good fun. So I know I am doing pantomime next. I know I'm doing pantomime in um, in Tunbridge near where I live, which I'm doing because right. it's just around the corner and I can go there and it's easy. Lovely. And it's very it's very good fun and it's a very good pantomime. So I'm I'm looking forward to doing that. But um in the meantime, I'm I don't know. I've been approached about doing a television series next year. That may happen, may not. I don't mm -hmm. know. 
but um, but I should just carry on and see how we go. Yeah. You know. Well, we wish you the best of luck. That's all the question. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.